0: I'm delighted that you've decided to tune in and rejoin us. We've got some absolutely fantastic content coming your way. So all that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode.
1: In order for your organization to make the best possible business decisions and to make the most of your data, you need the very best people and that's where Orbition Group comes in. We have a proven track record in partnering with some of the largest brands in the world to the most innovative and disruptive startups and everything in between. We go beyond traditional recruitment services. The organizations which we partner with benefit from the added extras that we offer, such as raising your organization's brand awareness to the data and analytics community, Providing you with insights into the current market and your competition. Benchmarking you against the industry to give you the best chance to successfully attract the best talent. We want to become an extension of your business to identify, engage, attract, and retain the best talent possible. If this sounds of interest, please reach out today by visiting OrbitionGroup.com.
0: Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season three. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Micheline Casey, who is the Chief Data and Analytics Officer for Siemens Energy. Thank you very much for joining us, Micheline.
2: Hey, Kyle. How are you? Very Thanks well. Thanks for
0: no, pleasure is, uh, is all ours. Looking forward to this. So uh, where we always start is by asking our guests to give themselves a brief introduction into their background and I guess journey up until this point in time, if you would.
2: Sure. So I am now 25 years in digital software technology, uh, data and analytics. I started my career just out of grad school, going to work for a software startup in Atlanta and uh, really fell in love with technology and everything it had to offer. Um, I don't want to date myself, but iPhones were not out yet. So it was a while ago. And um, (laughs) so I've been in in the market ever since. And uh, it's really been interesting to see, particularly in the data space, how much it's exploded during that time. Um, uh, I went to work for a data broker in the US, um, which was my first uh, experience purely in data where we were doing things like predictive analytics and data science, just that That terminology had not been invented back then. This is just after, this is like 2001, 2002. And then I was there for for five years. Um, But we were doing some really cool things back when this whole world of data was really starting to take off and digital was starting to take off. So for me, it's been a really cool, interesting journey. And I've had the opportunity to be the first chief data officer at the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C. And then global head of data at Ford in silicon valley and then the chief data officer at maersk in copenhagen and now um, i am helping the energy transition through data and artificial intelligence here at siemens energy
0: nice and you're now based in berlin right
2: i'm based in berlin yeah our headquarters are here and it's really exciting to be uh here in berlin
0: nice nice well you've uh yeah you've certainly moved a little bit where's been the favorite place in terms of
2: cities um yeah. in terms of cities um i i really adore copenhagen and washington dc yeah, yeah for sure
0: absolutely. absolutely um so look everybody on planet earth i mean we've got 20 nearly twenty-seven thousand listeners now um i know that you probably don't believe that but apparently i'm, I'm reliably told we, we do um 140 different countries and i'm sure everyone has heard of siemens as a, as a brand right but just give us the i guess the the kind of high-level overview of Siemens Energy from a business standpoint?
2: Yeah, so um, Siemens Energy actually um, spun off from Siemens um, almost three years ago. So we are a separate publicly traded company. But yes, we started as part of the Siemens corporate umbrella um, and uh, were most of the sort of energy parts and pieces from the gas services side. Um, But but now we are an independent company. Um, We operate in 90 plus countries around the world. Um, Our products, services, and solutions are used in about one sixth of the world's energy supply globally. Um, So we have quite an extensive footprint. I mean, the energy creation, generation, distribution, and transmission market is quite complex. (laughs) And it is very regional and very localized. Um, And we play really along the value chain from the generation side through distribution. What we are not is your utility company who supplies it to the last mile. So when you turn on your light switch, you have power. Um, We don't do that, um, but we uh, really are an integral part of that value chain, again, for one-sixth of the world's energy supply. Um, And what people may not know is that we still, as a planet, have close to a billion people, maybe 700, 800 million people who are underserved with energy um, or don't have energy at all in terms of, of being affordable, reliable, and secure we simply uh, are still there as a planet. So um, our mission is quite important and we're right in the heart of sustainable energy transition movement and really supporting our customer base, as well as industries, really large industries like um, oil and gas and paper and pulp and automotive, who quite often generate their own electricity and and energy sources to fuel their processes. Um, we're also helping them transition to a more re- renewable, sustainable footprint. Um, and that that part of our company is also growing quite a lot right now um, as, you know, there's more global demand for um, more sustainable solutions, which is great. So for me personally, um, I really love being part of the mission um, that we've got here as a company because it's so impactful mm-hmm. around the world, whether we're talking about just supplying people with electricity, you know, your so your kids can do their homework or, you um, you can uh, take a Zoom call um, to making sure that over the next, you know, 20, 30 years, as we get into, you know, the green uh, carbon footprint that we need, um, we're also part of that journey as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, that's uh, that's really interesting. I mean, some of those numbers are, are quite staggering, aren't they, unfortunately? Um, they,
2: they, they are staggering. <laughs> um, and and our, so our products and services mix isn't something that people would see necessarily and and know. like you know, from my time at Ford, where everyone knows what a Ford vehicle is. Um, but many of you see the power lines and and uh, certainly if there's a hurricane event or a snowstorm, you understand the impact when the power goes out. Right. And mm-hmm. um, so we're in a no-role part of making sure that the solutions are there.
0: Nice. Yeah. Um, so obviously, um, Siemens Energy brought you in as the CDAO. Um, what, what was the kind of main Task. What's the end game for, for you being there in terms of what they're, you know, asking you to achieve?
2: Yeah. So um, while the energy systems are in particular going through this huge transition to becoming much more renewable oriented, there are a host of different complexities introduced into the energy value chain and the management of energy systems overall. Um, So the complexity is increasing. Things are becoming much more digitized and smarter, right? So we're seeing a lot of investments, not just in the United States, but in many countries around the world going into um, grid technologies, making the grid smarter. Um, We've seen with um, the war in Ukraine that there's more energy security needed, etc., but because of the complexity and the changing dynamics, especially with the renewables coming online, right? We we are transitioning from where, a time where you'd have coal produced, you know, plants producing electricity, and this was highly centralized. Now we're moving into a much more decentralized environment where you may have um, solar panels in your home that may be feeding back to the grid, right? And the load balancing there needs to be handled in a completely different way than what the the systems were originally set up for. Digital and artificial intelligence now are becoming really key um, enablers of the ability to react in microseconds, in particular um, when we're talking about the physics of load balancing across systems um, and helping the system operators make decisions, automating more decisions, these types of things. But the customers themselves are because these investments are so huge, right? Hundreds of millions of euros, um, are trying to get more and more um uh uh operating maintenance out and an extended life cycle out of the investments that they made. And so they're looking to us to also help supply um analytics <laughs> and intelligence um and different solutions to help them really um, extend the life of the investments that they've made, really understand how to balance um, uh, renewables with um, the way they've traditionally done things. Um, so the level level and complexity of decision-making across the value chain has really, really intensified and will continue to do so. Uh, and digital and AI are really at the heart of it. And so um, the role was created and we are really starting to pull together the set of capabilities and foundations necessary to drive not only our internal operations to become much more effective and efficient, but um, uh, really making sure we can provide the digital services and solutions that our customers are looking for to power their operations.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it even sounds complex talking about it. (laughs) Um, So when we spoke offline, we talked about the kind of, I guess, this notion of, design centric thinking right and the role that that plays in creating value through through the use of data analytics and artificial intelligence and i guess weaving that into kind of you know the the kind of data product landscape that we are now you know living in if you like i guess for anybody that's not familiar just give us a very high level overview of you know the concept of design centric thinking if you would
2: sure so um design thinking has existed a 40 or 50 years now, really grew out of a company called IDEO, um, which created this framework that um, uh, is used a lot in innovation um, and is really about um, creating iteration to go from a custom the customer's point of view of a product, service, or solution and, and working it through um, really understanding the customer pain points and needs and the customer journey, through then defining and iterating and prototyping and testing a product, service, or solution that needs to be um, actually created in order to deliver on the, the problem set that the customer uh, actually has. Um, so it's a really interesting way, in my opinion, to to problem solve and to marry um, the world of what it had traditionally been, you know, um, thinking to create things like smartphones and cars and banking interactions, right? things that are much more physical, but it's also quite easy to apply many of the, the same concepts to thinking about how we build data products and artificial intelligence-driven service services within an organization in order to be able to deliver in much more fast, agile ways while really making sure that we're, we are focused around the problem and the pain points that we're all trying to solve for. You know, I think in the world of data in particular for large enterprises, um, while we have so much data, those data still are sometimes not easy to find, get access to, they're not high quality. Um, and so, what I and my product teams find is that by beginning to introduce some of these concepts of desirability, is this thing something the customer? whether it's an internal customer or stakeholder or an external customer, is that something they actually want? Are we really focused on the right problem? Um, and then the, the viability, do we actually have from a data perspective, access to the data that we need? Is it the quality that we need? Um, is it easy for us to get our hands on? What are the regulatory constraints about putting this data to use for this particular problem? And then feasibility, You know, being able to build and iterate on it. Um, it's very hypothesis driven. So when we also think about you know, um, MLAI, which is also a lot of hypothesis testing, these things start to marry up in a, a really nice way and, and keep the teams focused on not only the problem to be solved, but are we going to be able to solve this in a timely manner or are there some other things that we need to do in terms of master data, data access, data quality, um, and adjust roadmaps appropriately so we don't go down a design and build path without ensuring that we thought through these other other steps um, uh, in the process. So um, I've been quite successful in marrying and blending these, particularly around data products and, and AI solutions, um, and really think that for the business owners in particular, the business product owners, um, it gives them... a a very business and customer driven way to focus on the problem set while bringing something very technical to life.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating because obviously the whole debate that we often hear and see in the data analytics and kind of AI industries, you know, go to anybody that works within that space and say, you know, how do you get value out of data analytics? And they'll all say the same thing, right? You know, start with the business problem or opportunity, work backwards from that to create your strategy and and voila off you go type of thing yet often that for many reasons it doesn't play out like that but this just seems like yeah. a, a framework to help do that effectively right because I think there's there's often it, it's said quite flippantly and then there's just an expectation that okay well you know what the problem is work backwards and, and off you go and, and and it's done right but obviously as you've outlined there's, there's there's a lot more to it that needs to go you know sandwiched in the uh. middle
2: Yeah, it's quite complex. And I think, you know, most organizations that I've been involved with have varying degrees of maturity on how to think about this and apply these within an organization, right? You may have like manufacturing or engineering that have worked with with data and information for years and years and years and be really refined or like financial operations. But then when you are going to a new part of the organization, let's say HR, where and not to pick on HR people, they're awesome, but maybe um, uh, they're new to thinking this way, folks kind of freeze in my experience because they think, okay, I have to be super technical in order to re-engineer my processes or think about how data science can make my operations more effective. When in fact, beginning to frame things under the guise of, okay, what problems are you actually trying to solve? Okay, let's take one problem and that's, Break that down into its component parts, and really talk through whether or not we are focusing on the right things, and and really think through all aspects of it. Um, it becomes much easier for those business owners um, to to gain the adoption and the knowledge they need to then continue those processes because it's not as scary anymore. We're we're now speaking their language, right? Um, which is what we're supposed to be doing as data professionals is speaking the language of our customer.
0: 100%. Is there a reason in in your opinion then why more businesses and data leaders aren't aren't using, you know, design thinking as the as the framework to kind of get to business value because there's very few people talking about this. I know I don't know if you know Bill Schmarzo but he's been on the podcast a couple yeah, of times and he great. talks about, you know, the economics of data and analytics and and his whole thing is design thinking, right, to kind of get you there but
2: yeah, we're, he's got some
0: great models. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're constantly debating around value and how you realize value from data analytics. Yeah, you know, this seems yeah. like here you're talking about there's this perfect framework that can that can help you get there, but for some reason it's not being used even by data teams. Is there a reason in your opinion?
2: Well, I, I don't know the numbers, meaning, like, I don't know how pervasive it's being adopted or not being adopted. Um, uh, what what I love what I love about the framework is it does help us sort of laser focus in on getting some value quickly and iteratively and really easy way to do some hypotheses testing if you do have access to data um, the access to the data that you need um, it's you know it comes from a, a whole different industry and domain right you know creating New serials or creating new, you know, phones or whatever. So maybe people haven't thought about it. Um, but I like taking industry adjacent or domain adjacent things and thinking about how to apply them because we have a lot, a lot to learn. And yes, it's very easy for a company to say we're going to be customer centric or we're going to be problem oriented, but bringing that to life in practice means very different things to different people. Uh, and having having a framework, we also use the Lean Canvas a lot, right? And even on internal problems, how can the Lean Canvas help us really start to frame the problem and the opportunity? And and just just to get clear, right? Um, you know, using the Amazon press release, what's the end result we're driving towards? Some of these concepts have not been applied really widely in in the data to, in the area of data management or Probably more so in MLAI because those are often being used for um, uh, customer-facing work, like an e-commerce site or whatever. But for in, internal operations, these things are also quite applicable, um, and, and at least provide a um, a model for teams to to rally around and keep focused on.
0: Mm, absolutely, yeah. I guess in terms of then, if, if there's people out there listening to this, going thinking, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go look into this. It sounds like something we should be we should be considering, I guess, in terms of its relationship with a wider data strategy, how do you weave all of that together?
2: So in terms of the data strategy, right? Um, in, in my experience, that data and analytics strategy needs to be part and parcel of the overall business strategy, right? What are the goals and objectives we're trying to achieve? Like this is, this is pretty well known, at, at this point, right. But then, within those target areas, we're going to have various work streams, and we need to make sure that we are um, beginning to align the work that needs to happen and the capabilities and foundations that need to be built out, et cetera, in some way that makes sense. Where you're, you, you're, you've got the Lego blocks being beginning to stack up and architected in a way that ultimately, you know, in three to five years, that roadmap looks like it needs to. Um, applying the design thinking principles within those worked individual work streams then, um, particularly around the, not necessarily the, you know, ERP system transformations or Salesforce transformations, but truly like the data science work, the data product work that needs to happen, it then feeds requirements back into um, the, the capabilities and foundations that can then be exploited on behalf of the entire organization, right? So, if we are trying to build one particular model and it needs, it, and we're missing, you know, some level of quality on, you know, customer data or um, strategic sourcing data, and we're able, as part of this, identify that gap, clean it up, can then be exploited by many other services downstream, right? So. For me, it's we've we've got to have the overarching what is it we're trying to achieve in the overall roadmaps that lead to business objectives. And then we focus the resources in the portfolio we have in a tightly knit and integrated way for the actual delivery and execution, which generally you want to be doing in a CICD way, right? So you're constantly releasing. Um, though of course, you know, we have a mix of that as well, right? We still continue in my company. We're still integrating ERP systems and so on and so forth. So there's always some waterfall happening. Um, but when we're we're looking at specific initiatives like strategic pricing or um, dynamic um, th- dynamic uh, uh, dispatch optimization or digital twins, then we have to think about and model things in a in a different way.
0: Hmm. Interesting, very interesting. Okay, fine. I guess, just to bring this to to, to life a a little bit, uh, have you got any, I guess, examples where, you know, you've seen this work or case studies, use cases, whatever the case may be, where, you know, design thinking has been really successful in kind of creating innovative data products that have led to, you know, value realization, as it were? Yeah, um, and I
2: can give you a couple of examples, um, including, how we used it to stop some products from going to market and, mm-hmm. and why that made sense. Yeah. So maybe I'll start with the bad example before going, <laughs> <laughs> before going to the good example, because there's always something to learn. Right. Um, uh, so when, when I was at Ford, um, you know, with, with connected vehicles, there's a whole universe of data that you can get off the car, um, and, uh, many different opportunities to create, um, digital experiences for the customer of course with customer consent so i just want to put that on the table we always need to make sure we have consent for the usage of of the data Um, and we we had a really good idea for a particular product that we wanted to use based on a um a data product that we had already created that was industry facing in one area and we had a different set of pain points that we thought we could easily take that same product and stack, slightly modify it to serve a, a, a different problem and a different market set. Um, so we started down the path of doing the, the customer research. So we, while, while we had the, the tech stack done, what we hadn't done around this particular problem was doing any of the customer research to understand, um, if this was something the customers would actually be willing for, who was the entire pool of potential customers? um, What's the willingness to adopt? Would they be willing to pay? These sorts of things. So we we spent three months doing quant and qual research with a variety of potential customers um, because we had three or four different archetypes in mind for who the ultimate customer would be. What we found when we got to the end of, of the QuantQual research was that while universally um, there was interest in having this data product be created and be available, nobody was interested in paying for it. And the the industry area that we thought would actually be the most willing to pay ultimately um had some fairly complex backend systems that would need to be integrated with, which ultimately, if we had the luxury of three to five years at that time, we probably could have overcome many hurdles and made that happen. Um, But given the goals and objectives we had for our, our team, which was, where do we start to generate value in 12 to 18 month increments? We actually took the decision, much to my product manager's dismay, of shelving <laughs> that that product extension um, because the time frame wasn't going to work. Um, and we we could not see a clear path to um, the value creation that we we actually needed to hit. So that was that was a point where um, it was a really hard set of decisions. Um, but taking a look at all the research that we did up front helped us from actually going down a path of spending a lot of time and money to build something that then we could not get adopted in, in the market. So it was actually quite quite a good decision. On the flip side, um we've got a, a project going on now where um the the stakeholders came to us and said we have this problem we want you to solve for. And we said great we're going to set up a series of of workshops with with your internal stakeholders and and start to put some definition definition around it. And of course, everyone had a different vision for what they thought actually the problem, or they had a different understanding of what the problem was and a different way they wanted to solve for that. And so had a different set of expectations on what the outcome should be. Um, while it would have been actually relatively easy for us to jump into doing some model creation, which we started to do some MVPs and mock-ups anyway, it's parallel processing. We, we took extra time to make sure we could get the stakeholders involved really centered and focused on the problem to be solved because it was our first time working with this particular part of the company. And the world of data science was relatively new for them. So we were both educating them on how, Doing data science could help them get more predictive in their world versus just reactive. So there is an education curve while also trying to make sure that we are being very focused on solving for the right problem. Because if we didn't get it right, we may not, we we may not continue to build trust and credibility after that, right? So, so for us in particular, this one was important to make sure that we were really anchoring in on understanding the problem understanding the customer needs even making sure we understood the usability right so how are these decision makers going to use this information most of our decision makers at a certain level are walking around with laptops and and iPhones right which is probably no surprise so designing it as a web as, as a website, was not going to work. So, you know, there were those sort of considerations we wanted to make sure we could take into account and then start to work through, okay, um, in order to build this set of models, do we actually have the data? How do we prioritize the sort of hypotheses we want to start testing for? How do we begin to iterate on that to start to lead to some conclusions? So what could have been maybe a couple of, of, of sprint cycles, if we had not done that upfront piece, actually led us to um, a, a longer, it took about a quarter um, all in all. But we've got some really, really happy customers at the moment um, because we're able to pull together something that really met their needs in a, a different way than they were thinking about it as a collective from the very beginning. Hmm. Sometimes I think it's maybe better to go a little bit slower. To get to better results at the end right because at the end of the day um generally there's still a human being involved unless we're only doing machine to machine stuff and those human beings we need to satisfy and make sure that we're bringing them along on the journey and they understand what we're doing and there's transparency in that they they trust the process they have been involved um, and uh you know that uh, that we've we've made them happy
0: yeah absolutely i was just about to say obviously it comes back to the notion there of um slowing down to speed up ultimately right which um you know we we kind of speak speak a fair amount a bit across the ind- industry to a certain extent but often that is conflicting i guess in terms of this notion of quick wins and iterative yeah. value where does the design thinking and a conversation fit in in the differences between things that will take a bit longer but you're probably going to get a better better result versus you know the the shorter sharper prove the value get the buy-in type of, of conversation
2: yeah you know it's, it's funny since the term agile came into being I've, I've noticed that lots of companies think that means just move fast and we don't need to think about the problem we don't need to document the problem we like we forget all of the, the good things that we should be doing um, and we just build stuff really quickly when in fact that's not actually what, what Agile is about. Um, <laughs> but I, I am a huge believer in prototyping and mock-ups and, and showing the art of the possible early. I think that's quite important. At the same time though, we also have to make sure that we when we get into, when we get past just an ideation phase, yeah? Because the ideation phase is super, super critical, right? Um And making sure that we can hone in on exactly what it is we wanna be, at least as a starting point, what, are, what is it we wanna be doing? Um, if we don't get that part right, right? Then every, you know, the things that we've done after, there's a higher likelihood that we have to go back and it's more expensive to redo those things, right? Um, so the rapid prototyping, um, uh, is super important in the ideation phase. Once we have figured out we want to, what we want to do, then we need to iterate quickly to get value. But without that ideation phase, we're figuring out, honing in on that problem and set up hypotheses we want to test early. I think it makes it much more difficult to ultimately generate the value that you were trying to get to at the, at the end.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely. No, it's a really... Fascinating, uh, fascinating discussion for sure. Uh, I guess in terms of kind of org structure and, and organizational design, how, how does that piece together in terms of what's you know what's important to think about from a design thinking standpoint?
2: Yeah, the setup of teams that I've experienced is really varied across different organizations, right? Because every organization has their own way of sort of managing processes and infrastructure and Varying stages of maturity around, you know, product and platform, you know, these types of of constructs. Um, So what I think it's important to to understand is clear roles and responsibilities, really making sure that the accountability and the authority is sitting within one person. If we're talking about a certain type of activities and in the product space, you know, we, we use a two in a box model. Right, really making sure that the business person, and this is a learning within my company, that the the people in the business side truly have accountability for the strategic thinking and the vision and how to stagger the requirements and how to prioritize things, and on the data or tech side, right? We we're we are helping to execute, um, but we need to have the people. Sitting around around the table together, but with really clear lines of of, uh, in, of clear lines in the sand about who's doing what, what the right interfaces are, um, and and how the teams are going to execute. Um, because sometimes we also don't have the same execution cadence going on in different parts of the organization, right? So. The main team might be operating their sprints and running, you know, at one level of pace, but may have dependencies on another part of the organization that is running a more traditional waterfall approach or different sort of pace. So, um, think, uh, you know, ma- making sure that everybody's on the same page in terms of roles, responsibilities, execution speed, the, the stage gating. You know, how are we going to operate this? Those are those are
0: really critical. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So I guess the, the organizational structure in theory, doesn't matter that much in terms of design thinking, it's more about having the right people in the right places at the right times with the right set of expectations around how fast you're going to be going and, you know, having the business being involved to be accountable, that type of. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, ultimately the names of the roles can change across different organizations, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I, I've been in organizations where the product owner was on the technical side and the product manager was on the business side. And then the next company, it was vice versa, right? Like at the end of the day, we just need to get clear on, on who's doing what, have the right accountabilities in place, have the right um, operating structure and cadence. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Fine. Um, when we spoke offline, I'm con- conscious of your, your time initially, um, but when we spoke offline, you touched upon this kind of notion of modeling for valuation from a kind of more of an economic standpoint right um can you talk us through that and and how you you know how data leaders can go about thinking about that to you know realize value and and i guess articulate and quantify what that is because that's often a challenge right
2: yeah, yeah, and I think it's I I feel like it's still very much something, even though I've been doing this for a long time, that I'm still learning, right? Um, b- because the economics of even things like cloud compute, right, and and those models also seem to be evolving rapidly, right? That feed into some this business case. Um, so when when we're creating our our business case and value propositions, we are looking at both hard benefits and soft benefits and really getting clear from the business perspective what they think that business case actually looks like and what increments of time where things get, and, and that to me is the easier part, where I think things get a bit more tricky is the cost estimation then when um, uh, what I call the early adopters who are creating the first new product or service then gets the tax of pain for the entire stack of whatever that needed to be set up that then everybody else can come in behind and sort of leverage that, right? Yep. So in a few different companies I've been in, we've, we've int- introduced... The concept of um, not just modeling this one business case, but starting to lean into the particular data sets or parts of this tech stack that could be reusable, right? If we're building a microservice, if we're building an API, how can we estimate some level of demand beyond just this one business case where we can start to allocate the cost in different ways? Um, Now, varying. I will say this is my first experience doing this in Germany, right? <laughs> and the way the Germans, you know, a, a, account for things, right? It's it's every every country also has their different way of depreciation and these sorts of things, right? Um, but the economic modeling, I think of, of the reusability of data, the reusability of components, one of the things that we're tracking on our KPI scorecard is actually um, component reusability, right? So whether we're talking about um, a model that we develop, like in the strategic pricing example I talked about earlier, right? We know that strategic pricing may happen across all of our business units, not just one business unit, right? They, they all need to do this, right? So when, when we are building, then the, the requirements, the tech stack, et cetera, we're thinking about, okay, how can we make sure that we've got, we're, we're aligning with the right harmonized, you know, architectural models and approaches, et cetera, building in the right microservices, have the right APIs in place because the first time we build this as a new product, all of these things have to be set up new. But our ultimate goal isn't that it's a once and done for the first customer who came through the door wanting this, that we're able to actually use this across multiple parts of the organization. We have, we have four business areas, all four business areas, have the opportunity to use this, So multiple people within that so that's how we're designing and then we take a step back with our financial partners and say okay if we had this broad adoption then what would that mean in terms of a cost allocation model so customer a is not paying for the for the full thing and if we're able to actually um create a data product that is pulling some subset of customer information as part of the strategic pricing? Do I also have another use case somewhere else for that same, let's say, API and that same set of product? It gets a little complicated. I mean, I don't want to over... We can get into analysis paralysis, right? But my point is that there's some level of reusability we're trying to get to, and it's quite important because... We do need to be more cost-effective. There are ways to economically, on the foundations and infrastructure side, be much smarter about this. And and thinking about that from the beginning, while imperfect, um, and I still struggle finding good industry benchmarks for this, right? You know, like how much reusability should I ultimately have? McKinsey doesn't have that information. HBR doesn't have that. All those normal sources, like, don't have that information. So, um some of this we have to guesstimate on, but I think it's really important just to not just show the value to the business, but how we have been smart at simplifying and harmonizing the architecture and infrastructure to be much more cost-effective.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Last question from me, then very quickly: Does that you talked about the agreement of hard benefits and and soft benefits and the the, the value around that is that part of that design thinking? process is that involved in in that or is that a kind of separate thing
2: yeah no it's part of the whole you know once we get through the ideation phase um uh to get sign off <laughs> to move forward right there's got to be some some business case and um we make sure that the business people are signing off on those hard benefits the softer benefits you know are where we have broader adoption across the organization on something or productivity gains. Those are a bit fuzzier, but anything hard benefit the business has to sign off on.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a really insightful conversation um, and yeah, looking forward to seeing how the rest of your, your journey unfolds.
2: Yeah. Thanks Kyle. I hope I can come back in a year or so and we talk again and give you some more updates. Absolutely.
0: That's it for this episode of driven by data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow our group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me thanks for listening and i'll be back next week